I guess it is the bane of just about every preacher to try and fit everything he knows and believes in one sermon. And when you come to a topic like the fear of the Lord, I suppose the lofty goal would be to try to fit it in in one message. But when you study and when you attempt to understand the completeness of the Word of God, especially as it relates to a topic like this, the fear of the Lord, you simply cannot do justice to what the Bible teaches on this crucial topic by just one message. I know I've said this before, but I say it again. My heart is filled with praise to God, with excitement, with exuberance about the topic that will occupy us this morning. And I believe tonight and probably several Sundays afterwards. Because as I began to study this topic of the fear of the Lord, I began to understand new vistas of thought to my own experience as a Christian. And I began to understand that this particular theme of the fear of the Lord is so monumental, so encompassing, so wide in its implications, at least as far as Scripture presents it, we really cannot do justice by presenting a message or two on this subject. And that's why I'm going to suspend what I had planned for tonight to bring you a part two of what I bring you this morning, hopefully in an effort to see you come back tonight so that you might be thrilled and convicted and challenged just like I have been throughout these intervening days. And I trust that even beyond tonight we'll occupy ourselves with this matter. So much in my heart to say to you about what I've entitled the message, and that is, Where Wisdom Begins and Ends, The Fear of the Lord. What I've come to know and to realize in much more breadth in these days that I've been studying is that the concept of the fear of the Lord is actually the motto of wisdom literature. I might even suggest that it is the motto of the Bible. Of course, I agree that the full overarching theme or banner statement of the Scripture is the glory of God. That's absolutely true. But I think that the glory of God is most seen in the believer's response to the fear of God. And that's what I want to talk about in these several messages together. 
Carl F.H. Henry, one of the great statesmen of Christianity over the last 50 years, has commented about the present culture's pursuit of wisdom or this fear of the Lord. He says this, Despite its pursuit of knowledge, our generation, snared in relativities, is a stranger to wisdom. Wisdom, which Augustine viewed as the unum necessarium, the ultimate necessity, is no longer considered as the mind's indispensable acquisition, even by most intellectuals. End quote. He's right. And as John E. Johnson said in a very helpful article on the first seven verses of Proverbs 1, the consequence of such priorities is a modern society of intellectual giants who are pygmies in the art of living. Another said, alumni from noted universities have mastered information about a narrow slice of life but couldn't make it out of the first grade when it comes to living successfully with family and friends. It's true. We live in a society today in which information is king. The internet, the world wide web, information at our fingertips, or should I say at a click, or a double click, is for us all of the information that we would ever need or want, or so, so many say. And yet even with the burgeoning of so much information, there is precious little spiritual transformation going on. Well, what does the Bible say about such things? What does the Bible say about where wisdom begins and ends? Well, it begins and ends with that statement that I've already introduced to you, that phrase that will become so very familiar to us, and that phrase is the fear of the Lord. Now, I guess, having attended local churches, as most of you have for so many years, you've no doubt become familiar with that phrase, the fear of the Lord. But what does it really mean? How might we define it properly so that we could understand what the fear of the Lord really means? Well, I want to suggest to you that it means two things simultaneously. And I want you to write this down because I'll be coming back to this over and over and over again. It'll be a broken record sermon. The fear of the Lord is twofold. It is the holy reverence of God, and it is a healthy dread of God, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of the new covenant, as we Christians might say. It is the holy reverence and the healthy dread of Yahweh. Now, when I talk about holy reverence, we would understand that fairly readily because we would say it's the awe of God. It's thinking of God as He should be thought about, and that's true. It is a reverence, an awe, 
and awe-inspiring view of who God really is in His character, in His attributes, in His words, in His works. And we're all, I think, familiar with that kind of definition of the fear of God. We might not, however, be as familiar with the second part of that definition, and that is a healthy dread of God. Now notice that I said a healthy dread of God. What I mean by that is this, that when you study the Bible for any length of time, especially under the motif of the fear of God, you come to something very quickly, and it is this. Whether you are an unbeliever or a believer, doesn't matter. God is presented to both as one who is wholly other, one who is separate, one who is so holy, so majestic, so unlike us, that even as a response for the Christian, we ought to have a healthy dread of that God. Yes, He's our Father. Yes, He has forgiven us as Christians of all of our sins, past, present, and future. And yes, it is true that we no longer look at God as our eternal judge, but we look upon Him as our Abba, our Father, one who lovingly comes alongside us, who's forgiven us, who even though He chastises us, comforts us, who encourages us. All of that is true. Nevertheless, the Bible teaches that even for the believer, whether Old Testament or New, God is presented to us as one to whom we must have a healthy dread because He is utterly unlike us. No matter how much we could be involved in the doctrine and reality of sanctification, God will always and forever be different than we are. We're created. He's the Creator. We are sinful. He is sinless. And even when we go to glory, we will not be just like God in the sense of who God really is. We must always, at least as far as this life is concerned, have a dread of God. Healthy but a dread nonetheless. It is true, and I would say emphatically, that none of us should have an unhealthy dread of God. Unbelievers should have a, uh, an unhealthy dread of God. In that sense, they are the ones who are groping in the dark. They need to have whatever kind of dread they can muster at God because for them, God is a judge. But even for believers, our dread is a dread, but it is healthy what the Puritans called a blessed discontent. They were blessed in that they were forgiven. They were blessed in that they knew God. They were blessed in that they were forgiven by God. But they also knew God as so holy, so separate from them, so magnificent in His glory, so effulgence in His wonderful manifestation of Himself that they understood God in a way that, frankly, we do not in our time. That is, at least in part, the fear of the Lord. And as I said, and as I've titled the message, this is the beginning and the end of wisdom. And I'll show you at the end of our message what I mean by that. It's to say that there is a new way of looking at life. 
It's a new lens, a new pair of glasses that we look. We look through the Lord's eyes, as it were, and we fear Him because we see how He looks at our world, at least in part, at least as much as we can as sinful human beings. Now, some of you may not initially agree with this twofold definition, but Isaiah does. For in Isaiah 8.13, it says this, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. That's the first part of our definition, a holy reverence. And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. You see? It's a holy fear. It's a holy understanding of God. And yet it's also a very healthy understanding that He is God and I am not. That He is to be feared. Loved, yes. And fearing is love. But love that goes beyond just an affirmation that He loves me and that He's a loving God, but that He is also a God who is holy. A God who is high and lifted up. I dare say that when Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 saw this God as holy and lifted up, there was a healthy dread there. That's what I mean. And if we're to be like Jesus, Isaiah says of him, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord." Even within his earthly ministry, Jesus had a fear of the Lord. And I love the way Isaiah ends that section, Isaiah 11, 1 to 3, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. It's, it's a dread, yes, but it's such a healthy dread that I delight in the affirmation that because I'm a sinful human being, that God is still my God, but that He's a holy other God. He's not like we are in any sense. He is sinless. He's holy. He's high. He's exalted. He's magnificent. I can serve a God like that. I can fear a God like that. I can trust a God like that. And as I began to study this concept of the fear of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but when sometimes I study, I do it the old-fashioned way. I know that we have computers and we can do all kinds of checks and searches and all those kinds of things, and those, those are very helpful, and sometimes they're very um, time-conscious and we're able to do it in a quick way. But sometimes there's no better benefit than just grabbing your concordance and looking page by page at every reference to something and I want you to know that in my study, I looked at every reference in the Bible in preparation for this for the terms, the fear of the Lord, fearing the Lord, the one who fears the Lord, fearfully, all of those adjectives, all of those ways to describe this fearful God. I looked at every one of them, and I just loved it. I just loved looking at it because every passage that I looked to, it gave me insight into this concept of the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. I was so enthralled with this that I think, even though this is certainly not infallible, I think I was able to come up with a way to characterize a biblical look at the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, in four categories. Four categories. Now, this is not, again, an inerrant categorization, but I believe that at least all of these passages in our entire Bibles can give us a view of the character of God 
in four ways. We'll talk about one of them this morning. And I don't know how far I'm going to go this morning, but we'll talk about it. Now, they all start with P, but I'm not going to give you the P's. I'll give you the first P, but not the others, because you need to come back, all right? The first one is this. The fear of the Lord can be categorized with number one, His power. His power. We might be able to say it propositionally like this. To fear God means to live in light of His power. To fear God means to live in the light of His power. It's an amazing number of passages of God's holy word that speak to us of the power of God, but in the context of the power of God manifested through that phrase, the fear of God. It's amazing. As you thumb your way through your Bible, you're able to see that God can be categorized as a God of power and that we know this God of power and therefore because of it, we live in light of this power through the fear of this powerful God. You say, what do, we, what do I mean by that? Well, let me give you some passages of Scripture that will occupy our minds this morning with this idea of living in light of the power of God as we fear Him. I want you to turn, first of all, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis 20. And I hope to go chronologically, or not chronologically, but canonically through the entire Word of God and show you these passages which speak of the fear of God and under this first point, the fear of God as seen in His wondrous power. And of course, the commonality of all of these passages that we're going to go over is this phrase, the fear of the Lord or fearing the Lord. Or one who fears the Lord. However it's represented to us, you're going to see that that's the commonality in all of these passages. And when these passages are all put together, whenever we finish, we will see that God is to be feared because of His power. We might be able to say, these passages that I'm going to share with you are showing not only a holy reverence of God, a holy awesomeness to God, but also this very healthy dread of the sheer magnitude of the power of God. It shows us that we don't have this kind of power. It shows us how small we are when compared to our powerful God. And it gives us a healthy dread. It shows us that this God is so powerful, He can do anything He wants. Genesis chapter 20. Look at verse 3. This, of course, as you know, is the account of Abimelech, the king, and Abraham is not wanting his wife, Sarah, to be taken by Abimelech, king of Gerar, according to verse 2. And he's taken Sarah into his lair. But verse 3 says, God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he, said, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said he is my brother, and the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. 
Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Which is, by the way, a great affirmation of the providence of God. God controls all things, even the heart of a wicked king. Now, therefore, verse 7, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all, you and all who hear, who are yours. Excuse me. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? Abraham said, Because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. In other words, Abraham knew that in order to be a true believer in Yahweh, that there had to be a requisite fear of God, that there was this holy reverence, this holy awe, and this healthy dread of God. Well, that's not what Abimelech had. He didn't have this fear of God. He was a, he was a foreign king, and he certainly had no fear of God in his eyes. And Abraham took it for granted that because he was not a Jew, because he was of the nations, that he would have no fear of God in his eyes. And so he said, I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Now you say, what can I learn about the fear of God here? Number one, fear God because he controls all things, including dreams. God controls it all. He is powerfully able and, in fact, controls all things, including whether or not someone is doing nefarious evil deeds. And if God, of course, before the canon of Scripture was closed, wanted to reveal himself to someone in a dream, he is powerful enough to do it, and he did it, and he showed Abimelech, the king, that he could not, would not, should not have this woman sexually. He controls all things, including dreams. In other words, you must fear God, have a holy awe and reverence for God and a healthy dread because He controls all things, even the things in which you think. He controls it all. He even controls unbelievers and what they think. He even controls how they live. He even stops them when He wants them to be stopped from further sinning. Now that, my friends, is a powerful God. God who can do all of that, who can control men's minds, who can control their thinking, who can control their actions, who can control everything about them, He is a God to be feared. He's a God to be feared. There's a healthy dread here for all of us. God knows what we think. He knows everything that we do. He knows every motive of our heart. He controls everything, and in His providence, He, he works and weaves and mixes and matches all things so that its appointed end shall come. And because we know a God like that, we ought to fear a God like that. There's another passage, Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9 that shows us something else about the fear of God. 
especially His power. Exodus chapter 9, verse 30. In verse 27, Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron, said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I, my people, are the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord, verse 28, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, verse 29, as soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. What is this? We could say it like this, fear God because He is an avenger. He is an avenger. God controls all things. He, he controls the thunder of the sky. He controls the hail. And Moses knows that Pharaoh does not yet fear God. And so he says, the thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And I know that you don't know that yet. I know that you don't affirm that yet. And when you do, it's going to stop. But until you do, you're going to know that God controls all things, even his own avenging judgment on you as a wicked man and your people for what you've done to the children of Israel. We, we, beloved, must fear God because He is an avenger God. He is very jealous over His people Israel. And they've been done wrong. And because they've been done wrong, this Pharaoh must pay. He must learn. And because he's not willing to do it, and you know both from the Bible story and that which you might have seen on a movie channel that Pharaoh was again unbending, 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 even saying, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it, and then doesn't do it. He didn't fear God. And God wanted him to know through that prophet Moses, through that leader Moses, you don't fear God. You don't really fear God. But when you see that thunder and that hail, you're going to let my people go. You're going to see that you do not yet fear the Lord your God, but you will. Verse 33 says, So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and rain no longer poured on the earth. Well, that's a God I want to be the servant of. That's a God that, that I want to know so that that healthy dread doesn't bring that kind of calamity upon me, right? Genesis chapter 4, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14, verse 31. Exodus 14, 31, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. What did they do? The waters were spread out, and the children of Israel walked through, and then they turned and looked. And according to verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. That's something to fear God about. 
what, what would you have done? What would we have thought if we had been one of those children of Israel watching this very thing occur? The water's walled up on both sides, and we safely walk through, and as soon as you turn around, you can see the water crashing in on the Egyptian people. Incredible. By the way, wouldn't that have been a marvelous manifestation of the grace of God to the other Egyptians who were back in the city? Knowing that their entire army, including their king, Pharaoh, their, their great one, has perished? Wouldn't that word coming back to them be a word of mercy? Should you not also fear this God based upon what's happened to your entire army and to your president himself? See, that's a, that's a reason to fear God. That's a reason to reverence God, to see Him as holy and unlike others. Why? Because He has the power to actually say to a body of water, split, and it's split. And I want you to uphold yourself until all of my people have passed through, and then when my people have passed through, I want you to come crashing down on the Egyptians, and that's exactly what happened. My friends, that is a powerful God. That's a powerful God. Why should we fear God? Because Exodus 14, 31 says it is His sheer power. Power. You see, we live in a culture in which we don't regularly see this kind of power manifested, and so we become very, very comfortable with the here and now and the natural of this world. And we don't see this. And so we are lulled into thinking that maybe God isn't that powerful. Certainly that's what the world says. You can certainly talk with someone and ask them if they know this kind of God of power, if they affirm this kind of God of power. They don't fear that kind of God. They don't see that kind of God as powerful, but we do. We. You can certainly talk with someone and ask them if they know this kind of God of power, if they affirm this kind of God of power. They don't fear that kind of God. They don't see that kind of God as powerful, but we do. We should as Christians. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. And we're just going through the Scripture and seeing what the fear of God means in its context each and every time. Specifically, the power of God, living in light of His great power. Verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. I think they have at least partially the picture here. This is a great God. This is a powerful God. This is, this is a God to dread. This is, this is something for which I'm fearful and trembling. Why? Because this greatness is before me. Only God could, could produce this kind of thunder and lightning flashes, or at least perceived as such, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. 
Moses said to the people, verse 20, Do not be afraid. In other words, don't be physically afraid. For God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of Him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. In other words, God is manifesting His great power for a reason. He has a purpose here, and His purpose is to say, Fear me when you see my great power manifested. Fear God because of His awesome voice. When God speaks, if you're a human being, you might say like the children of Israel, we don't want God to speak to us. We don't want to hear that awesome voice. We want to hear a a human being, Moses, speak for God. Uh, That's a little less spine-tingling for us. Again, what what would it have been like to be there at the foot of that mountain and to see these things and to hear these things and to experience them and to know that it was the very manifestation of God Himself. Incredible. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34.10. Then God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations, and all the people among you whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Be sure to observe that I am commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their Asherim, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is jealous for His name. He's jealous for His worship. And you want to fear God because of His great miracle working power. He says, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to perform miracles. And it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. We ought to fear God because of His great miracle working power. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4. We ought to fear God because of His chastisements. Yes, even as a believer, we ought to fear the Lord because of His chastising of us. Verse 1, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? God is so near 
we can call on Him immediately, He's saying. Or what great nation is there that His statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. Of course, you ask the question, why is he having to go into so much detail? Not this, not this, not this, not this. Because human nature is, we'll do it. If he says not to do it, we'll try to figure out a way to do it. If it's not the likeness of an animal, we'll try something that creeps on the ground. So he has to say, nothing that creeps on the ground. If it's not that, it's something else. Verse 19, And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them that sound like astrology today? Those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for His own possession as today. Now the Lord was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I will die in this land, I shall not cross the Jordan, but you shall cross and take possession of this good land. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which He has made with you and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm teaching you and I'm telling you and I'm commanding you that you need to keep the Lord's commandments. You need to do what the Lord says and you don't need to worship any other God and you don't need to make a graven image because if you do those things, you'll forget all of the law of God and you'll begin to be idolatrous people and God will chastise you. He'll judge you. And by the way, for an object lesson, just look at me. I disobeyed the Lord. And for my chastisement, because I didn't fear the Lord in that very crucial moment, and when I struck that rock, how many times? Twice? When the Lord said, how many times? And some, someone's, someone might say, well, well, that seems pretty petty. That seems, that seems pretty far-reaching for God to say to Moses, the leader of the children of Israel, you do something like that, you did it one extra time than I told you to, and you're not going to possess the land? 
You're not going to be able to, to experience this land flowing with milk and honey. You're not going to be able to cross over there because you did this thing. It's almost like when Uzzah was killed by God on the spot because he touched the Ark of the Covenant and someone again might come along and say, but boy, that seems pretty severe, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that seem just a, just a little heavy-handed, a little harsh? Moses says, use me. Use me as an object lesson. Understand this. When I started to be proud and I started to lead the children of Israel on my own merits, and when I said, I will not do it your way, God, but I will do it my way, God was showing him in unmistakable terms, I'm the leader, you are not. And you will not do this, you will not lead this people in any other way than I told you to do it, because I am a jealous God and I will not share my glory with any other. I don't share my glory with others. And Moses, I've given you a great revelation of myself, and I've given you a great gift to know me as a man talks to another man. And when your feet were off, it was, when your shoes were off your feet because it was holy ground, there was a reason for that, because I am holy and you are not. And when you do something which I say don't do, you're not fearing me. You're not reverencing me. You're not having that healthy dread of who I am. And so I command this day, I give you a proclamation, you shall not enter the promised land. Boy, what an, what an incredible chastisement. But you know what? Fearing God includes the chastisement of God when we become wayward. It's God's will. It's God's way. And we need it. See, we have such a a lofty view of ourselves, we want to be able to say, but Lord, that's a little heavy-handed. Lord, that's going over the top. Lord, I just did it once. Lord, I, I really have a better plan. Lord, are you sure about this, your will? Can't we do it this way? Can't I just touch this? Can't I just do this? And the Lord says... You must learn to fear me. And if I have to bring chastisement into your life so that you are humbled, so that you might come to the place where you understand that I am a jealous God and I will not share my glory with another, then I'll allow discipline in your life for the purpose of you returning back on the path. Unbelievers would say that's harsh, that's bullying, that's a killjoy, that's a... God who can't be trusted because He won't ever let us do what really is fun or memorable or nice. But that's an unbeliever who has no fear of God in his eyes, has no understanding of the character of God, has no understanding of the righteous judgments of God, has no understanding of the law of God. We must fear God because of His chastisements. Even as Christians, does not Hebrews 12 say, He scourges every son whom He receives, and every son He loves, He chastises. Why? Because, as one of the great old Puritans said, our chastisements are His advertisements, that He's in charge, that He's God, that He controls all things, and that by His mighty power, God can do it. He can do this work. 
He knows what He's doing. He's powerful enough to bring about everything in our life that is good and right. His will, His purposes, His law is holy, just, and good. How could we ever come to the place where we say about ourselves and about our plan, it's better than God's. It isn't better than God's. And if we keep pushing our will and our agenda and our plan and we keep pushing God to the periphery of our lives, then chastisement's going to come. And at the forefront of that thinking will be this, I am not understanding the fear of God and I'm not living in light of His power. Could it be that any chastisement you may be going through right now is a chastisement because you've not properly understood the fear of God? You've not properly understood this fear of God and His chastisements, that He scourges every son whom He both loves and receives? He does it out of love, yes. He's not doing it as the ultimate judge because of the cross of Jesus Christ. But one thing's for sure, He will make us conform to the image of Christ and He'll use trials and tests and chastisement and discipline to bring it to pass because we're so far from the character of conformity to Christ's likeness. So far. I'm so far from that, it seems as though sometimes I'll never be conformed. I know that's not true, but it seems like it, doesn't it? You sort of look at your life and you look at your sin and you look at your disappointment of the Lord and others and you say to yourself, Lord, do I really understand anything about you? Do I really understand that to fear you is to bring myself to a place of submission to your power? God, when I see thunder and lightning, even, even if I were to drive today and I come to a place where there's a thunderstorm and there's lightning, do I think automatically of the great power of God? That, God, you're in control of all things. And even that thunder and lightning is an examination for me in my own heart that I don't control things. I don't have that kind of power. I don't have that access to power like God has. God is infinitely powerful. And when I see that storm, when I see those miracles, when I see that chastisement, I can readily say, God, you're in control. I'm not. I'm not. And I fear you. I reverence you. You're the great God of power, and I'm powerless in your sight. There's so much to know and understand and learn about the fear of God. And we're just halfway through the power of God. Let's come back tonight and listen to more about fearing God. Let's pray together. Father, this is, this is a great lesson. It's a great lesson about your power. That you were trying to tell the children of Israel over and over and over again. I want you to understand my power. Fear me because of my power. Fear me because of what I can do. Fear me because of my awesome voice, because of my miracles, because of my chastisements. Know me. Fear me. Love me. Because you know I'm powerful enough to take care of you. I'm powerful enough to minister to you, to show you the right path. Father, please forgive me and forgive us for not acknowledging your rightful power and for not living in holy fear, holy reverence, healthy dread of, of this great power of yours. If you can raise Jesus Christ from the dead and if you can raise our mortal bodies, 
we ought to be able to submit to your power and fear you. Oh, Lord, may it be so. Please forgive us for not trusting you and not acknowledging your power. And what is probably more grievous to you than anything else, not living in light of the great display of your power, so clearly laid out for us. Lord, I pray that there would not be anyone here who would not only not acknowledge your fear, but would be subjecting themselves to the power that actually sends men to hell. I pray that they would run to Christ, cling to Him, seek His mercy, ask for His grace, desire His salvation, which is the power of God. We pray that You would bring it to pass. In Jesus' name, amen.